we'll make a start. We're in Exodus again on our journey with the Israelites, and we're going to start the first plague today, the plague of blood. Last week, we saw that when Moses was obedient to God, I went before Pharaoh, who was a type of Satan. He refused to submit to God and instead hardened his heart by refusing to obey God's instruction to let the people go three days into the wilderness and worship God. And that wasn't so bad. I mean, it was a bit of a a slap in the face to Moses. But then things got really bad. And God actually told Moses that Pharaoh would say no. So that was kind of expected, so it's not too bad. But then things get really bad for Moses. Pharaoh says, no more straw for these people. Don't provide any more straw. And so the people had to make the same number of bricks, but they had to find their own straw. And that became an impossible task. So it says they were scattered all over the land of Egypt, trying to find their straw, but they couldn't find the straw and make the bricks at the same time. And so what happened was they just got beaten up. The slave drivers would just crack their whips and beat the Israelite leaders, the supervisors there. And they came back to Pharaoh and they said, what are you doing? We can't do it. And then Pharaoh said, it's all Moses' fault. And then they went and saw Moses and they complained against Moses and almost stoned him. But what was Moses' response? He didn't complain to the people. He didn't retort. He didn't answer back. He didn't argue. He went to the Lord and he poured out his heart to God. And God's answer is not what we expected. Instead of saying, oh, sorry, Moses, I didn't think about that. God says, now I've got Pharaoh exactly where I want him. Now you will see what I can do, what I promised to do. So from God's perspective, the persecution was just another opportunity for God to demonstrate and communicate his power and character to the world. Then he goes on to give some wonderful promises to Moses. So we'll stop and pray, then we'll read the section we're going to go through. Father, thank you for the example of this story, Lord. Lord, there's lots of things that we can learn for our own lives in here. And I just pray that you help us to learn it and to apply it, and that you'll help us to be wiser at the end of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start reading chapter 5, verse 22, just to get the context. And we'll read through to verse 13 of chapter 6, and then we'll go through that. It says, um, so chapter 5, verse 22 in Exodus. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, neither have you delivered your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, or Yahweh, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. 
Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed or listen to Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh the king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So last week we went through the the first six of the I will statements. It says, I will bring you out. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you, I will take you as my people, I will be your God, and I will bring you into the land. So that was the, um, the first six, and we related that to our personal salvation. The next one is, I will give it to you as a heritage. That means like an inheritance, because it's going to be passed on. And just to remind you, each of those I wills, past tense. So God is saying, I will do this. In past tense, he's saying, I have already done this. So if he was going to written in English, he would have been written as, I have already done this, in that kind of language. So that's how certain God is of what he says. He will finish what he has started. Now, the seventh I will statement, um, continuing on now, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So he's going to provide for them. I'm going to not only going to bring you into the land of promise, but I will provide a heritage or inheritance for your children. I have great news for you, Dad. God has a plan not just only to direct you, but to direct your family, your children, and your grandchildren as well. So we can apply this to ourselves. And uh, remember the story in um, the New Testament, the Philippian jailer? Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So it doesn't mean that if one parent gets saved, the whole family is automatically saved. But if you do follow the Lord, it will impact the rest of your family. And so many times in various ways, God says in the Bible, teach your children so they won't forget, so they can be blessed. Time and time again, fathers, teach your children. Fathers and mothers, uncles, brothers and sisters, uh, we need to communicate the truth about God to our families. And um, just as a bit of hindsight, Israel didn't do a very good job at this. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but what happened was God would raise up someone, and I'll take Joshua as an example, and um, he died. And then all the people who crossed over the Jordan and saw those victories, uh, like Jericho and stuff, they died. And as soon as the last one of those old men died, the people just reverted to pagan worship. And then God would raise up another deliverer, and they'd worship God for that time period. And as soon as that person died, they'd just revert to their old ways. And so they hadn't passed on the truth about God. They hadn't passed on, they hadn't taught their kids about God. 
they had neglected to instill in their families a knowledge and a love for the Saviour, a knowledge of and a love for the Saviour. And the next generation paid dearly for their neglect. So we have a rich heritage to pass on to our kids. It's really important that we don't miss the opportunity. And uh, just to something that's quite relevant for now, Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, and Will Graham. Imagine if Billy Graham was too busy in his ministry to spend time with his kids. It's very unlikely that Franklin Graham would have grown up to be the person he is today. We can affect our kids for good. So I'm really glad that Billy Graham spent time with his family and raised his kids in the Lord. And we know that Franklin Graham didn't follow the Lord straight away, but he came back. And that's God's will. That's in God's hands. We can't guarantee our children's salvation, but we can pray for them. They have to make their own choice in the end. So pray fervently, pray regularly, and pray believing for our kids. Now, let's just think about this I will. All right. In verses 4 to 8, we see seven I wills, seven statements of promise made by God. The one thing we don't see is a single if you. Now, because the gospel is an unconditional promise. It's an expression of God's love for us. It's all about what he has done for us and nothing about what we must do for him. The gospel is nothing short of the best news the world has ever heard. Our sin is forgiven, the price is paid, the work is done. Now, what did Paul say to Timothy when he was writing his final letter to Timothy? Did he say, grow in the knowledge of the Lord? Did he, yeah, he he did say that. Did he say, grow in faith? What did he tell Timothy to grow in? I'll put you out of misery. He said, grow in grace. The final word to Timothy was, grow in grace. The most important thing Paul could say to Timothy was, grow in grace. He didn't say be strong in, or you know be strong in righteousness or grow in your understanding of theology. That's fine, but growing grace is the most important thing we need to grow in. It's the whole point of Christianity. It's the whole point of the gospel. The more we understand what God has done for us, undeservingly, that's grace. Then we will want to read the Bible. We will want to pray. We will want to learn more about him. We will want to follow him. We will want to, to worship him because it's grace that gives us those desires. It's We want to give back to God what he's already given to us. So growing in grace also causes us to grow in our love for the Lord. The more we come to understand God's grace, how much he has done for us, for no other reason except that he loves us, we naturally grow to love God more and more, to want to please him more and more, and the less we want to please ourselves. And this is how we overcome sin. When the temptation comes, all I have to do is remind myself that I love God more than I love the passing pleasures of the sin. And uh, here's a little story for you. It's a man falling in love with a woman, and they are focused on each other, and they will actively resist anything that tries to separate them. So here he goes. Hey, Joe, all the boys are going fishing for the weekend. Let's go. Ah, nah, sorry, Bill. I'm having dinner with Rebecca. Another time, maybe. Did you know that we're getting married soon? Joe, all I can say is this. You've got it bad. I don't think that you'll ever come fishing again. This is the fourth time in a row that you haven't come with us. You've even stopped drinking with us every night. I really don't understand how one person can change your life so much. Bill, 
All I can say is this, it's love. So you've probably all experienced that, that kind of love in your life. The child of God, the believer who grows in grace and continues to fall in love with God, their Savior, will more and more actively resist or refuse anything that would take them away from that relationship. We should say no to the drink, the drugs or pornography or the temptation to sleep in or the desire to get revenge, not because the law tells me I shouldn't or can't do those things, but because there's a better way, a greater love. There's more pleasure to be found in Jesus than there is in any of those other things. So when God says, I will, it's an unconditional promise and it's a reflection of the gospel. Verse 9, so Moses spoke to the children of Israel, but they did not listen because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Now, what is anguish of spirit? There's a definition here. I found it quite interesting. You know when kids get so upset and they're crying so hard that they can't breathe properly? Okay, that's a physical manifestation of sorrow. Okay, well, that's a picture of anguish of spirit. It's like they're just in anguish. They're just really burdened down. And the gasping for breath, the child is gasping for breath. And so these people are just, their spirit, they're emotionally gasping. Now, why do you think that they were like this? Well, there's an answer, and we're going to read a scripture. If you could um, look up while I'm just explaining it, Ezekiel chapter 20, and we're going to read Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 5 to 9. The reason that Israel was in anguish of spirit was because their centuries of slavery had made them think like slaves instead of God's people. In their eyes, Pharaoh was bigger than God. Pharaoh, in their eyes, was more powerful than God. And many Christians, we find ourselves in the same place. We can find it hard to trust God and believe that he is for us when you're in those difficult circumstances. That's why Paul said we must not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So the children of Israel needed their minds renewed, and we do also. Notice Moses wasn't suffering anguish of spirit. He went to God, poured out his problems, and kept on doing what God asked him to do. Now, the verses we're going to read explain why God was so small and Pharaoh was so big in Israel's heart during this time. Okay, Ezekiel explained that they trusted the gods of their oppressors, worshipping the gods of the Egyptians. And this is why they didn't trust God and his messenger Moses. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 5 to 9. It gives us a background of the heart of the children of Israel. It says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in in an oath to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, Each of you, throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. 
they did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and will fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted, or I I didn't do that, for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So even in the midst of the land of Egypt, they had refused to give up their idols. The idols of the land of Egypt. They just wouldn't let go. God's command was, Each of you, throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the things of the world, idols of Egypt. And they refused. And God almost destroyed them while they were still in Egypt. But for his namesake, for his glory, he had patience with them. He kept on forgiving them, and he led them out. He kept his promise. So here we have a really good insight into why the children of Israel were in anguish of spirit, because their eyes are on the wrong God. When we become Christians, guess what? God gives us the same command. Each of you throw away the abominations which are in before your eyes and do not defile yourselves with the things of the world. And that's sanctification. God wants us to throw away all those things that we're holding on to when we're still in the world. The good thing is, despite their doubt and their anguish, God still kept his promise. God still did what he said he would do for his people. So no matter if we, we sin, if we're doubting, if we're weak, God is greater than that. God will remain faithful to finish what he has started. Our sanctification is complete in God's eyes. Isn't that awesome? No matter how much we stumble and fall, our sanctification is complete. Just like the children of Israel, even though they never let go of their idols, God still took them into the promised land. God will keep his promises. That's why the I will statements are so important. It's God will do it. It's not up to us. All we need to do is just respond to God's goodness, to his grace. So we can be like the children of Israel, having our eyes on things of the world and getting help from the world. Our circumstances won't change, but our perspective can. We can either be thinking, oh, this is a terrible tragedy. Oh, no, it's the end of the world. No one else has ever experienced this before. Have you said that to yourself? What was me? I wish I'd never been born. This situation is far too hard for God. He doesn't know what to do. It's just hopeless. <laughs> or, by faith, we can be thinking, fantastic. I can't wait to see how God will work in this situation and bring glory to his name. Thank you, Lord, that I get to experience your love, power, joy, and peace, and be used by you in these difficult circumstances. Lord, your will be done. Please do your will in me. So let's move on to verse 10 in uh, Exodus 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and gave them a command for the children of Israel, for the Pharaoh king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, Moses is complaining. Moses is maybe legitimately, look, the people aren't listening to me. I don't even have them behind me anymore. How, why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Which is fair enough. 
And what does God do? I've given you a job. Just go and do it. Come on. Get back in there. Hurry up. So verse 14, we start with the genealogies. And uh, basically, these are the credentials of Aaron and Moses. So you can read all those names in your own time. Some of the things I just want to point out, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. Simeon was Jacob's secondborn. But it was Levi, Jacob's third son. That's where Moses and Aaron came from. That They descended from them. In verse 20, it tells us that Amram was the father. Jochebed was the mother of Aaron and his younger brother Moses. So it's giving us a family tree. And then in verses 21 and 23, it also gives us the four sons of Aaron. And we'll see them later on in the story. So that was a very quick run through the genealogy. So verse 26, These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to the Ramis. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. So genealogy, it's not there by accident. It's the Lord's way of reminding us that God had prepared Moses and Aaron for their ministry. God had a plan for them. Before they were born, God knew that he was going to select these two people to represent him and go before the king. What did Jeremiah say? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and ordained you a prophet to the nations. That's God's message to Jeremiah. And remember, God's calling means God's enabling. And what he begins, he always completes. You might remember Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has already laid out our life before we were born with all these good works that we can walk in them. You and me, everyone in this room, has been called by God from their mother's womb. God has a plan for your life. It'll be a plan which is going to take you through some trials. It's a plan that's going to be difficult, but it's going to be bring glory to God and it's going to cause you to grow. And when you get to heaven, you'll be saying, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I've learned to love the Lord so much. I've grown so much. He's taught me so much. And I wouldn't have done it any other way. So you just hold on to that. Chapter 7. I just want to spend a little bit just putting yourself in their shoes. The situation at this point, just to give you the perspective, was as bad as you could ever imagine it to be. They were slaves. They were being beaten. They were giving an unfair quota, an impossible quota of work to do. They had their eyes on false gods and they were just in anguish of spirit. They were down, down, down. Okay? So when we go through situations, I encourage you to think about these poor people in Egypt, the Israelites, and just think about, well, is my suffering really any comparison to what they're going through? Because you know how you can say that, oh, there's always someone worse than me? Well, here's a someone who's worse than you. And God is showing amazing patience with his servant Moses. 
Moses, oh, I can't do it. I'm uncircumcised lips is another excuse. But God doesn't even chastise Moses. He simply tells him what he has to do. He reminds him of what his instruction was and tells him to go do it. And that's another example of God's mercy. Now, it says here in verse 1, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh had said, Who is this God that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And a lot of the world has done the same thing. So God is going to deal with Pharaoh through Moses. And the idea carries over into the New Testament. Guess what? We are his ambassadors. We are like God to those around us. Not that we're more powerful than them, but we represent God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, that we are like letters written by Jesus that the whole world reads. We're living epistles. And overall, a prophet is one who represents God to man. And as such, all the Lord's people are prophets. Are we giving those around us a true idea of God? I'm not talking about prophets as we're all going to prophesy, but we all represent God to people around us. We are all living epistles. So, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. So we, in that sense, are a representative of God. We, are, we represent God. People can't see God. They've rejected him, but they can see us. And your brother should be your prophet, and speaking like a mouthpiece. And the prophet listens to what God says, and so Aaron has to listen to what Moses says. Verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt, and bring my armies and my people the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So God is saying, go speak to Pharaoh, but he won't listen to you. But that's okay, because that's going to give me the opportunity to bring glory to myself. And you're going to see who I am. You're going to see my power. Is going to provide liberation for his children, God's plan, but it's also going to give revelation to the Egyptians. God is going to demonstrate through the ten plagues that he is more powerful than their gods, that he is the true God. So sometimes we say, Lord, liberate me. Set me free from the snap of the whips of the Egyptian oppressors. Set me free from the bondage of baking bricks under the desert sun. Gladly, God says, that's my intention. But I'm also doing something else simultaneously. You see, I want the Egyptians, that's the unsaved people, the lost souls, to see my power, to understand my reality. And for that to happen, there will be a series of problems that will affect you too. I'm tired of my situation, we say. My boss is mean. My trials are great. Why don't you set me free, Lord? I will. In due season, he says. Heaven's around the bend. But why do I have to endure this trial? Why can't you take this cancer away immediately? Don't you have the ability? Why can't you solve the problem today? Why can't you work now? Again, come back to this thing. God is doing two things simultaneously. I'm working in you, your sanctification. Your mind is being transformed to become like Christ. 
And at the same time, there are Egyptians, the unbelieving world, watching carefully to see how you handle the same trials they face. I want them to see my power. I want them to see what I can do through you. So if I win the lotto or Powerball, people go, oh yeah, so what? You know, they're not going to say, well, you know, God's good or anything like that. Because anyone can win lotto. Anyone can be happy when they win the Powerball. But when the worldly person, when the unbeliever sees us, when we're facing problems on the job, when we're being persecuted, when someone's teasing us, when someone's unfairly treating us, when there's difficulties in the family, when there's setbacks financially, difficulties physically, and yet we walk through them victoriously with a good attitude and joy in our heart and peace, then God is glorified. God never promised to protect us from problems. He promised to see us through them. And as he does, the neighbor, co-worker, brother, sister-in-law, or father say, there's something about the way you go through life that I can't do. I don't understand. And it's the power of God. And we tell them that it's God's grace in my life. And some people think that God exists for me, but he doesn't. God does not exist for me. God has a bigger plan than merely my comfort, a greater concern than simply my ease. We will be in heaven soon enough. We'll get all the comfort and ease we want there. But for now, we have to be a good example. We're representing God as we go through trials. This world is full of trials. All right, verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So, if you're under 80, you're still young. You've got a lot of service left in you. <laughs> then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. Now, the word that they use for serpent is slightly different. This could mean a snake or serpent, but it could also mean a crocodile or dragon. And in Egypt, they had like a crocodile or dragon. The word is um, tannin, T-A-N-N-I-N. It can mean great serpent, dragon, or crocodile. And if you go to Psalm 74, 13 and Ezekiel 29, verse 3, there's that connection there between Egypt and the crocodile or dragon they used to, to worship there, used to idolize. I won't go into it now. It's not that important. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants. And it became a serpent, or a crocodile, or a dragon, whatever it was. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. Now, who were these magicians? Well, in 2 Timothy 3.8, Paul tells us who they are. Janes, J-A-N-N-E-S, and Jambres. Okay, we'll read that scripture in a sec. If you can look it up if you want, it's um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. So how were they able to duplicate this miracle? Can Satan do miracles? Is Satan that powerful? Well, yes, it appears so. Paul wrote later in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying 
wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they do not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. So this means that miracles can prove that something is supernatural but they cannot prove that something is true. Do you understand that? Just because you see a miracle, it doesn't mean that whoever's doing that miracle is from God. And the Bible says, like somewhere in Deuteronomy, God says, I'm going to allow people to come, false prophets to come and do miracles, but it's a test for you to see if you're going to understand the truth, to believe the truth, to hold on to the truth. Or are you going to turn away and follow these people who are not speaking the truth, who are leading you astray? So the verse I asked you to look up is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. It says, They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as James and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs was also. So corrupt minds resisting the truth. That's the world, and that's what we're up against. So when we go and we, like God says, go talk to this person about God, go talk to this person and share your faith, guess what we're going to face? We're going to face people like this, people who resist the truth, men of corrupt minds. But guess what? Some of those people will be saved. God will change them. God will work in them, and it's up to God to do that. We can't do it. We just need to be faithful to go and keep on sharing what God has asked us to share. Now, I love this next bit. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. So you can imagine these magicians, Jams and Jembras, you know, smiling as their rods turn into serpents, crocodiles, alligators, whatever it is. And then Aaron's one eats them up. Oh, there goes my rod. I have to get a new rod now. Mine's just been eaten. Jesus said, go into the world and preach the gospel. And if you come across serpents, in Mark 16, 18, they will not hurt you. As Paul put wood on the fire, when a snake in the sticks felt the heat, it fastened its fangs into Paul's hand. The natives saw this and they thought, ah, Paul must be a murderer because he deserves to die. He survived the shipwreck, but now he's been bitten by a snake. But he shook the snake off into the fire. No harm came to him. And the natives thought, well, Maybe he's not a murderer. And Paul was able to tell them about Jesus. You find that in Acts 28. So as believers, we are not free from attack, but we are immune from its effect. Snakes show up and they strike, but we can eat them up, shake them off, and not be beaten down. Even though the enemy was able to produce snakes, Aaron's rod ate them up. Here's an example of how we can be beaten down, but we can still be victorious. Joshua and Caleb were among the group of 12 spies who spied out the land of promise. The land is a glorious place, they said to the children of Israel upon their return. But there are giants there, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight, argued the other ten. No, God's with us, and these guys will be bread for us. We can eat them up, counted Joshua and Caleb. Numbers 14.9 But the people listened to the ten instead of the two, and wandered for forty years. After their entire generation died, Joshua and Caleb were at last allowed to enter the land of promise. When they arrived, a now 85-year-old Caleb said, Joshua, for my inheritance, give me the land where the giants are. I want to have that land where the giants are. 
Now, why would Caleb ask to go and conquer the most difficult part of the land? Because he knew something about giants. To him, they were bread and he was hungry. Give me the challenges which challenge others, he said. Give me the giants and pass the butter. <laughs> I'm going to eat these guys up. Okay, so don't run away from challenges or obstacles. Instead, say, this is a chance for me, like Aaron's rod, to overcome the enemy. It's a way for me, like Caleb, to grow spiritually strong. Okay, verse 13. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. That's what happens when you share our faith sometimes. We still need to be obedient to keep sharing our faith. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. So just to re- repeat the purpose of this, these plagues, the big picture, is to bring Pharaoh and the Egyptians to their knees so they'd be willing for the Jews to leave the land. That's one. But the bigger purpose is that God is revealing himself both to the Israelites and to the Egyptians and proving that he alone is God. And there's a... Um, it's in Samuel. It's around. It's about Saul's time, so hundreds and hundreds of years later. And the Israelites have just lost a battle against the Philistines. And they say, I know what we'll do. We'll bring the ark, the ark of the covenant. And so the ark comes into the camp and the people shout. And what do the Philistines say? What's going on? And they say, oh, the Israelites have brought the ark of the covenant in. And the Philistines say, Oh, isn't this the God who destroyed the Egyptians with those plagues? Hundreds of years later, the memory of these events is still in the culture. So you shall know that I am the Lord. And for generations, and you wonder, Well, how do all those people, you know, did God really give them a chance? Well, they knew. They knew that God was the God who destroyed the Egyptians, who brought his people out of Egypt. They all had that knowledge. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. Verse 18, And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe the water to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. So, the first of the ten plagues, the blood. Now, the first nine plagues are grouped together in threes. And in the structure of threes, the first two plagues come after a warning and a call to repentance. And the third plague in each set comes without a warning. So there's the overall. And then you've got the tenth one, which is the death of the firstborn. So each of these plagues has a definite strategy and purpose. Each of them confronts and attacks a prized Egyptian deity. So not only do they bring punishment against Egypt, the plagues also answered Pharaoh's original question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? 
chapter 5, verse 2. So plagues show that the Lord God is greater than any of the deities or gods of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded, verse 20. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So, the Egyptian god Kunum, K-H-N-U-M, was said to be the guardian of the Nile, and he was unable to protect his territory. The god Happy, H-A-P-I, was said to be the spirit of the Nile, and was brought low by this plague. He wasn't so happy anymore. The god Osiris was thought to Osiris was thought to have the Nile in his bloodstream. And in this plague, he truly bled. <laughs> so the Nile itself was worshipped as a god, and their papyri recording hymns sung in praise of the river. So the Egyptians really held the river in esteem and worshipped it. And historical evidence, if you're into archaeology and stuff like that, there's a papyrus from this period known as, it's, I can't pronounce this, I-P-U-W-E-R, I-P-U-R, papyrus, and it actually says that the Nile was blood and undrinkable. So there's historical evidence for this event. And the same papyrus repeatedly mentions that servants left their masters. Guess what? There was a mixed multitude who left Egypt. So what was it like? Well, all your, your water bowls and your vending machines, blood. Your swimming pool, it's blood. The water in your garden hose is blood. Okay. So, Pharaoh's magicians, what do they do? Well, where do they get their water from? They turn water into blood as well, but where do they get their water from? They had to dig for it, just like everybody else. They had to dig for their water. They couldn't turn blood back to water. They could only turn water into blood. And so, guess what they did? They dug down, got some water, and instead of using it for good, they turned that into blood too. So, Satan can do powerful things, but he never uses them for good. They can make more snakes, more blood, more frogs, but all they do is multiply how difficult life is already. People can truly tap into the demonic power through psychic hotlines and astrology, algebra boards, tarot cards, but remember, they only make things worse. Demonic power never, ever, under any circumstance, in any way, proves to make things better. It only makes a bigger mess. It brings you up more under Satan's power. So just to finish off, 22 to 25, Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So for seven days, the land of Egypt is full of blood and represents judgment. And there are a lot of similarities. This is a bit of homework for you. I don't have time to do it on Sunday morning, but do a study comparing the Exodus plagues with the tribulation. There's a lot of similarities there. Now, as a summary for today, Moses, the lawgiver, turned water to blood, but Jesus, the life giver, turned water to wine. The law is our schoolmaster to show us that we can't be righteous or perfect before God, that even our best efforts 
produce nothing more than death. Death of peace, death of freedom, death of hope, and separation from God. But once we realize that, once we embrace Jesus as the one who pulls us out of the quicksand of sin and death, we are free to drink deeply of the wine of great, great joy. So Moses, the law, Jesus, he gives us the water of life. Just to have finish with that picture. So the two main things I'd like to remember is God wants to demonstrate his power in our lives, not by taking us out of the trials, but by carrying us through the trials. And our perspective in the trial depends on our faith, what we put our faith in. Not how much we have, but what we put it in. Because the Israelites put their trust in the gods of the Egyptians, they experienced anguish of spirit. They were like children sobbing so hard they could hardly breathe, emotionally speaking. But Moses put his faith in God and took all his doubt and complaints to God and therefore was able to continue to follow God in obedience. So let's be like Moses. and When we go through the trials, take our complaints to him and we can be strong enough to continue in God's will and enjoy his peace in our heart. Father, thank you for this awesome passage today. Lord, there's, um, there's so much um, that we can apply to our lives here, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness, that you will complete what you have started. Lord, you keep your promises. I love those I will statements. Lord, it's all about you and it's not about us. Lord, our sanctification, our justification, our glorification. In the New Testament, it's all past tense. And uh, I just praise you for that, Father, because no matter how much we fail, it's not up to us. Once we're saved, it's all up to you. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.